And Father, thank you for your open arms. Thank you that we can run to the cross and we can identify with the finished work of Christ. We can dress ourselves in the robes of righteousness and we can come to you just as we are. There's no cleaning ourselves up. It's all done by you through Christ at the cross. Thank you, Father, that uh, we have our Bibles. Thank you for these times where we study together. Father, may your word be like a hammer and a chisel, just working away at us, conforming us to the image of Christ. We yield our hearts and our minds to you now that this would be a valuable time and that you would just use it well in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And thank you. You may be seated. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and let's turn back to the Old Testament, to that little book of Jonah that we've been studying this summer. It's that little book of Jonah, a familiar story, and we've actually finished our study in Jonah. I want to just remind you my thinking as to where we're going to be today and next Sunday in two sermons that find their footing in our studies in Jonah. You'll recall that Jonah uh, was in the belly of the fish. He comes out of that situation. He becomes a willing servant to head to Nineveh in obedience to God, and yet he's not a surrendered servant. He has significant hardness of heart. And we find it interesting, as we wrapped up our study a couple weeks ago in Jonah chapter 3, we're reminded that Jonah preached, the people repented, and that God relented of holding back his hand of wrath on the Ninevites because of their sinfulness. And then it was quite stunning to read Jonah's response in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 4, excuse me, verses 1 through 4. Let's remind ourselves. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And it's shocking. You know, it's, it's not so much that it's a man of God who is given over to anger. We've seen that before, right? In our Old Testament, we have numerous accounts of spiritual leaders who were very angry. I mean, one of the best demonstrations has to be Moses. Exodus chapter 32, don't turn there. Just remember with me. Moses and Joshua have been up on the mountain. God has given him the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. God has taken his own finger and, and carved them into the tablets of stone. These ten guidelines of grace on how to live in a way that can please God. As they're heading down the mountain to return to the people, they've been gone for nearly 40 days. Moses had delegated his charge of leadership to his brother Aaron, who was the, the high priest of the camp. And while he was gone on the mountain with God, Moses, his brother Aaron succumbs to the people's wishes and they have formed a golden calf out of their jewelry. As Moses and Joshua return to the camp of the Israelites, they find a cacophony of chaos 
of of debauchery and nakedness and pagan dancing going on as they worship the golden calf as a representative of Yahweh. Moses goes berserk. He picks up the Ten Commandment tablets, he smashes them on the stones, breaks them into gravel. He grabs the golden calf, burns it in the fire, grinds it up into powder, throws it into their drinking water tanks, makes them drink it as the ultimate illustration of the worthlessness of their God as they can eat it or drink it and urinate it out on the ground. And then he says to the sons of Levi and the Levites in the camp, strap on your swords. And he tells them to go about the camp. And that day, 3,000 Israelite men were put to death by the sword because of their wicked hearts before a holy God. That's an incredible story, but we can handle that. We like that. We like a man of God to stand up strong for God. In fact, arguably at the least, anger is an emotion, part of an emotion of passion given by God, even created by God, even springing from the very character of God as the Old Testament is filled with with accounts where God himself expresses himself. Now it's, we call it anthropomorphically. Anthro, that's man anthropology. It's taking the taking the emotions or characteristics of a human being and ascribing them or describing God with those emotions. And so even God himself is recorded in our Bible as being angry. Always a righteous anger, like Moses' anger was at that occasion. And we had, I mean, there were times when he was going to wipe out the whole camp. Moses interceded. A time when he opened up the ground and he swallows up the disobedient priests, the sons of Korah, offering up unholy fire. And so we can handle that. We can handle spiritual leadership in our lives that expresses a righteous indignation, even an an expressible anger at wickedness, at anything that is an affront to the holiness of our and beauty of our great God. In fact, we could even argue that it is the task of a spiritual leader to become angry in certain situations. It, it, it's, it's hard not to be angry and to speak with, a, with a, even inappropriate anger, but, but a righteous anger comes out of me each January when we address the sanctity of human life. The slaughter of the unborn in our nation. Surely that, that makes us angry and that's a good thing. And God designed us to respond appropriately in certain situations with anger. But as we closed out the book of Jonah, this is bothersome. This is just not right. A spiritual leader who is just ticked off, he's mad at God, he's mad about the mercy of God. So angry so beside himself with his anger that he just wants to die. He wants God to just kill him. And we say to ourselves, what is it with this spiritual leader and his anger? That's not right. As I reacted to Jonah in preparing the messages, 
I had to admit that um, in my own self, this year, I don't know why this year, this winter and spring, I'll not give you personal testimonies. I have struggled with anger and temper in a way that I have not felt since my college days. Overcoming that as a young man and, and, and somehow this winter and spring, it just seemed like anger boiled within me and I often recognized it as an unrighteous anger and I began to worry about myself. So I load up on the bus with a group of our men, our spiritual leaders. We head off to pastor's conference in May, uh, out to Ohio, a couple thousand pastors gathered. We get there, we go every year, we enjoy it, it's helpful. I open up the program, and sure enough, one of the breakout sessions, the pastor and his anger. So that's perfect timing. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe... Maybe nothing's wrong with me. Maybe I'm just a normal pastor and we have anger issues. And I see it in Jonah. And I go to the seminar and the guy did a lousy job and it really ticked me off. <laughs> I was a little disappointed in it, but it, it was useful to continue in my thought processes of, Lord, what, what is it? that I'm out of step with your Holy Spirit like this. I mean, we're talking today about anger and the man of God, but I think I would encourage you to put in parentheses as soon as I say that, you need to say, I say anger and the man of God, and then inside your head you say, and me too. Because wouldn't you agree with me that anger's an issue in our culture? Anger's an issue in our homes Anger is an, an issue that all of us can relate to. It's a complex issue. We're not really going to talk a whole lot about the source of anger, especially unrighteous anger. There are many reasons for that. Largely, it has to do with our pride and our selfishness and blocked goals. You will almost always identify the fact that what brings the heat out of you is when you don't get your way. Your goal is blocked. And we see it all around us, don't we? We know. We know what we're talking about here. We're talking about... We're talking about long sleeve shirts in hot weather to cover up bruise marks on the arms. We're talking about teenagers who scream like they're demon possessed because their parents have used a two letter word, N-O. We're talking about a mom who breaks down weeping because she realizes she has shaken her baby in anger and she doesn't want to be like that. And we're talking about news stories of golf clubs through back windows. We're talking about country songs about Louisville sluggers bashing out headlights. We're talking about adding words to the thesaurus that everybody knows, even if you never opened a thesaurus in your life, like going postal. And so we we have this matter of anger that surfaces in the life of Jonah, and it shocks us. We're not comfortable with this kind of anger. We've seen it in God, a righteous anger. We've seen it in Moses, a righteous anger. Uh, we, we have experienced a righteous anger, even in ourselves at different times. And God has used it to, to protect our homes and to protect our children and, and to take a stand against unrighteousness as a firewall against a society that's ever impressing itself upon us as a church. And there is a place for righteous anger. But what do we do with anger in the spiritual leader like this? Remember parentheses, and in me too. And so what I want to do is I just want to 
I want to just stir the pot a little bit. I want to, uh, to dig into the Word and some Bible study together so that the Spirit of God has enough fodder to work with us this week and help us put our finger on some things that we need to develop in our own lives to overcome this. If you have your outline nearby, you'll recognize that that we've just divided it into two major parts. The first part is, why does this matter? Why does unrighteous anger in the life of the spiritual leader matter? And secondly, then, I want us to do a case study of what it looks like. Why does it matter and what does it look like? We have recognized in Jonah that he had anger issues and that it caused him major problems with God. We actually don't even know how he resolved it in his life. I believe that he did come to resolution. I choose to believe that. We have no evidence of that in our Bibles. I invite you to turn with me now to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want us to, to list off four or five reasons why this matters in the life of the spiritual leader. The first one is, is that the qualifications for a spiritual leader demand self-control. The qualifications demands self-control in the life of a spiritual leader. Okay, and so before we even start the list, don't click off your brain and say, oh, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not a deacon or an elder. If you're a mom and you have children, you're a spiritual leader. If you're a husband, you are absolutely a spiritual leader of your home. If, if, you have, if you are a Sunday school teacher or a helper in Olympians, you are a spiritual leader. If you, if you help as a teenager work at table groups at our camps, you're a spiritual leader. Certainly we're talking about deacons and elders and pastors in the local church. But all of us have influence spiritually and all of us are called to have influence spiritually. And so it applies to all of us. You know, when we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's part, of a, it's part of a series of instructions that the Apostle Paul and Peter give to church leaders. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, we have bullet point or grocery lists of the credentials. These are minimums of the requirements of what it takes to be a spiritual leader in the local church. So it's not what a spiritual leader is to become, it's what all of us are to be. And by the way, as we read this list, be reminded that in every case, every identifiable characteristic required of a spiritual leader, you can find elsewhere in the New Testament as a requirement laid down for all believers. So these are minimum standards. This is foundational to Christian character. And if your Christian character is at this point, then you may be looked at as a potential, as a deacon or an elder, a pastor in the local church. If you do not demonstrate this, then you are disqualified. And so reason number one, letter A, is the qualifications for spiritual leaders demand self-control. Let's run through the list. And we're going to go very quickly through this, laying this foundation of why this matters, because... I think that it's easily understood. First Timothy chapter 3, this is beginning with verse 1. This, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or an elder or a pastor must be, there it is, above reproach. So number one on our list is you cannot serve as a spiritual leader if you're not above reproach. An angry spiritual leader is not above reproach. Years ago, when I was a student in Bible college, I was aware of a a ministry of a dynamic pastor in a growing church. I've watched that pastor and his ministries through the years. He's still in ministry today. 35 years I've been aware of his ministry. 
I, on an occasion, I was with some young men from his church, and I was very interested in him. And one of the things they told me about him is said, we hate to play basketball with our pastor because he always loses his temper. He was not above reproach with his young men. Secondly, notice it says self-controlled in verse 2. Not only is he to be, a, the overseer is to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, there it is, self-controlled in verse 2, respectable, respectable, number three on our list is respectable. You cannot be a man of tempers and be respectable. Not violent, but gentle, it says. Not violent, but gentle, the application is clear. Not quarrelsome, verse 3. Number five on our list, not quarrelsome in verse three. He manages his own household well with dignity, verse four. With dignity, an angry man is not a dignified man. He goes on to say, not only does he manage his household well with dignity, he goes on then to to list some other characteristics, um, keeping his children submissive and managing his household well. He must not be a recent convert lest he become puffed up with pride. And then moreover, verse 7, number 7 on our list, he must be well thought of by outsiders. That's people outside of his church that he would not have a reputation. A spiritual leader with a temper will have a reputation even in the community that is negative. So that he may not fall into disgrace. Number 8, he must not fall into disgrace. And when we lose our temper in an unrighteous way, we fall into disgrace. Let me remind you that a life characterized by anger issues violates this baseline of standards for the spiritual leader. I want you to remember that there is no permission anywhere in the New Testament for any other Christian, including spiritual leaders, any other Christian, there is no permission for you to live below this standard. Unrighteous anger is unacceptable in the life of the spiritual leader and in in the life of every other Christian. Well, it goes on. The second thought that comes to my mind is that this really matters because um, the command to be controlled by the Spirit of God makes no allowances for unbridled anger. The command to be controlled by the Spirit of God makes no allowance for unbridled anger in the life of a spiritual leader or a Christian. You don't have to turn there, but let's just remind ourselves what's there in Galatians chapter 5. This is where there's two lists as well, like bullet point lists. One is, is a characterizing of the deeds of the flesh. The kind of the way you acted before you knew Christ. Before you knew that the Spirit of God lived in you. The second part of the list is, and this is what you look like now that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And in the negative part of the flesh, it uses in verse 20 of Galatians 5 the word enmity. And that's a word that we're not real familiar with. The ESV uses the word enmity. Uh, That means to be actively hostile. To be actively hostile. You're a troublemaker. You create havoc. Enmity, that's an anger kind of word. Secondly, strife, that's conflict. That's an anger kind of word. Fits of anger is spelled out specifically in verse 20. And then the contrasting list starts in, and if, but, the, but the acts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, it calls it in that passage, that which will bear fruit in your life as the Spirit of God has dominion over you. And you're growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be characterized by peace and by patience and by kindness and by gentleness and by self-control. Listen, 
To walk in step with the Spirit means unrighteous anger is unacceptable in my life. I recently took a test with Pastor Mark. For us, the doors are opening. I don't have time to talk about it, nor is this the place. But I want to tell you that I have never seen a season in 23 years at Fellowship Bible Church where ministry doors are opening for Fellowship Bible Church among our congregation and for our congregation like I have seen in the last few months. One of those opportunities is in the juvenile delinquent hall, uh, the uh, holding cell area in Martinsburg. We have a wide open door to minister there as much as we want. To get in there, you have to take a test to make sure that you're okay to work with children. Thankfully, I passed the test. It's a weird test with a lot of weird questions. And yesterday, Janet and I were driving up from North Carolina, and, and we were, I, I don't like 95, so after we got to Richmond, we came over to, over to uh, 522 up to 29 to 17 and came through the country and had a nice drive. And Jonathan had fallen asleep in the back seat. I couldn't get him to drive. And, uh, and I um, was talking to my wife. It was a good time. And we had a nice conversation, and I was telling her about this test and about uh, the weird questions. And I said, you know, one of the questions on that test said, have you, and I was thinking about my message for today as I drove as well, and it said, one of the questions was, have you ever been so angry with somebody that you could smash their face? That was the question. She said, what did you say? <laughs> I said, I said, yes. I said, Yes. The next question was, have you ever been so angry with somebody that you could kill them? And I said no to that, but I'm not sure I told the truth. (laughs) She said, well, when was it? (laughs) And I reminded her of of an occasion that that I was involved with, with my mom and my dad in their older age with a a wicked neighbor and and a certain finger that he raised at my mother and certain things that were happening and, and how good it was that I didn't have a weapon in my hand at the time. And she said, what did you do? I said, I stood up real, real tall and I just looked at him. And she said, I'll bet that really made him think of Jesus. <laughs> there is a clear contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the Spirit. And everyone who's in Christ in this room knows it. And you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Why does this matter? Because the baseline of qualifications for a spiritual leader demands self-control. Secondly, to be, to be identified as under the Spirit's control demands that we not have unrighteous anger in our lives. Let me quickly just click off because I want to get to point two and it's going to take a few minutes when we get there. This is a very interesting verse. In fact, we can turn there. We're in 1 Timothy. If you want to flip to Hebrews with me, let me just read to you Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. And let me remind you, and let me remind you that worthiness for imitation, worthiness for imitation leaves no room for unrighteous anger in the life of a spiritual leader. Hebrews 13, 7 says this, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And if he's an angry man, he is unworthy of imitation. Fourthly, I want you to see, by the way, under that point, letter C, an unrighteously angry man is a very ugly man. 
An unrighteously angry man is a very ugly man. He is not worthy of emulating or imitation. Fourthly, anger is a lid on the blessing of God. Anger is a lid on the blessing of God. What do we mean by this? In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says there that, that the, the wrath or the anger of a man does not accomplish the righteous work of God in his life. The anger of man does not facilitate the righteousness of God to be at work in my life. So here's how it works. It's possible that the mess you're in is of your own doing. In other words, you're angry because you've done something wrong. You're angry because you've made a bad decision. You're angry because you are sinning and it's your fault. Or it's even possible that you are, are getting angry or worked up or stressed out over something that's not your fault. Uh, a horrible rainstorm, a flat tire, busy traffic, late for a deadline that's very important. In the middle of all that, you start getting worked up. What am I going to do? I'm kind of angry. And if you get angry in an unrighteous way, it's like building a roof over the top of your life that reflects or deflects the very involvement of God in your life. So you get angry and you kick it. And then you break your toe. That went well. (laughs) Or you got angry and you broke the door off its hinges. Or you slammed it so hard it never shuts correctly after that. That was was really good work. And what was God doing there at that time? Why wasn't God involving himself in solving my problems? I can't handle this. Because you have put a lid over your life with your unrighteous anger and God kind of folds his arms, steps back and says, okay, have at it. How's this looking in your life? How's this working? Because the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteous participation of God in his life. You're going to see that in our case study in just a few minutes. It matters because it is a baseline for spiritual leadership. It is a dynamic of the Spirit's control in our life to not be angry. It, a, a man worthy of imitation cannot be an angry man. He's an ugly man. Anger is a lid on the blessing of God in our lives. Finally, anger inevitably damages relationships. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. Anger inevitably damages relationships. How about with our spouse? Paul specifically told husbands in Colossians 3, do not be harsh, men, with your wives. Do not be harsh. And and by the way, wives don't have permission to be harsh with their husbands either. It's just the general tendency is that a man can be more harsh than a lady, generally speaking, in temperament and, and in makeup. And so Paul didn't give that specific instruction to the women because it wasn't as necessary. How about with our children? Do not embitter your children, Paul said, making them angry. Anger inevitably damages relationships with our spouse, with our children, with our staff. If you have people under you and you show unrighteous anger and irritation towards them, it closes their spirit. The flock of God, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, to shepherd the flock, not in a domineering way, but showing them an example of how to live. Angry people are domineering people. It doesn't go well. Even the Holy Spirit, which we've already referenced, Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and sin not. See, there is an anger that is not sinful. And then it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. 
in that passage, it talks about grieving the Spirit of God. And so even our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit is damaged as we quench the Spirit and close off the opportunities of relationship through unrighteous anger. It's a very serious thing. It damages relationships. Uh, Yesterday afternoon on the same trip in the same time of having the conversation about my anger with my mom and dad's neighbor, we were on a two-lane country road coming up through there, and I started to laugh out loud, and I showed Janet there was a big, nice home there, and the guy had built a huge sign and when painted it all black, and in big white block letters, he had cut out the words and put on these letters on there, a dog killer lives there. And he had a big arrow pointing at his neighbor's house. I, I perceived, even as I went whipping by 10 miles above the speed limit, maybe, that there's a relationship issue going on there. And somebody got really upset with a dog and he did something about it and the neighbor didn't appreciate it and he put a big sign on the side of a busy road, dog killer lives there. That is a neighbor relationship that needs help. And it's, it's an anger problem. So there it is, some of the reasons why this matters. So what does this look like? We have some illustrations in our Bible, as I already referenced, of righteous anger. We also have some incredibly detailed illustrations of men of God and spiritual leaders who... who in this case, nearly spoiled their usability because of a temper tantrum one day. I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me tell you just briefly what it is about here, and then I want to invite readers to the front microphones to help me read an extended passage of Scripture. It's hard on time management. I make no apology in a worship service of reading a lot of Scripture, but it is going to take a few minutes in a minute. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25, right before 1 Samuel chapter 25 comes chapter 24. And right after chapter 25 comes chapter... That's right. And in both of those chapters, you have very similar stories. We're talking about the life of David. This is the David who killed Goliath, who's been appointed to be the king of Israel. He is not on the throne yet. He has not been established in his, in his kingdom King Saul is still the king, and King Saul hates young David, who has been appointed and anointed to be the king. And he's been chasing him around. He's going to chase him for nearly 10 years. And David is going to live like he's on the run. He has a group of loyal men who are with him. There are 600 of them at least. And they are out in a section of the wilderness, and in chapter 24, David is demonstrated to be a godly man with significant self-restraint because there, as he's running from Saul, he notices one day that Saul slips away from the group of men, goes up into a cave, and when he goes up into the cave, David and a couple of his scouts sneak up through the rocks and they go in the same cave and they realize that Saul has gone into the back of the cave to relieve himself. They have him dead to rights. He has dropped his robe at the front part of the cave and made his way to the back of the cave. And David's men want David to kill him then and there. And David says, I won't touch God's anointed. And he takes his knife and he cuts the corner of the robe. And he goes down 
And he stands below the cave, at the mouth of the cave, and Saul gets done with his business, comes out, puts his robe back on, realizes part of it's missing, and David's down there with it on the tip of his spear, basically, waving it around, and hollers at Saul and says, Look, I mean you no harm. And Saul got the message that David could have got him. And David doesn't. In chapter 26, almost the identical thing is going to happen. Only this time, Saul and his men are sleeping in their camp out in the wilderness, fatigued from chasing David. And David and some of his scouts sneak into that camp, go right to where King Saul is sleeping on the ground. And David takes a spear and sticks it down in the ground through his robe and leaves. And his men say, do it now, put it in him, put it in him. And David won't do it. He has self-control and restraint. And he puts the spear in the ground through the robe and leaves. And Saul wakes up in the morning and he's hooked to the ground with David's spear. And he knows exactly what happened. But in chapter 25, in a most remarkable demonstration of, of lack of control, David goes berserk with temper. And he almost slaughters hundreds of innocent people. Let's read the story essentially in its entirety. I invite my readers to join me, please. I invite you to follow along in chapter 25. It'll take a few minutes to read this and then just a few minutes of application when we're done. I think you'll find the story incredibly interesting. Some of you, it will be familiar. To others of you, you had no idea a story like this is in the Bible. We have over here in Pastor Everett, David. He's been on the run. He's fatigued. He's tired. His men have been in the wilderness. We have next to David. Uh, well, over here we have Nabal. In, in, we typecast it very carefully. We found the meanest, most wicked man in our church. And it's Jeff Main. And he's Nabal. And then we have uh, Abigail, his uh, wonderful, beautiful wife that you'll see described in the passage. And that's Tabitha. And over here next to David is one of Nabal's righteous young men's servants who's going to be involved in helping bring clarity to the situation. I'm going to be the narrator. You follow along and listen closely and notice the nuance of the story. And then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. Notice this. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men... Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from 
I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and they came back and they told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while, we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. And then Abigail made haste, and she took 200 loaves and of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried and she got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And she fell at his feet and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now... Let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. 
Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly, by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground, and she said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. We'll conclude right there. Now let's turn our attention back to our notes. Thank you, readers. What an incredible story. And uh, we recognize that we have here one of God's choice spiritual leaders who boils and rages with anger and nearly commits mass murder that would have been outside the will of God. It would have been something contrary to the character of God for him to do this. And in fact, it likely would have short-circuited him in his usability for God. I'd like us to just look at a couple of the the obvious uh, points that come that surface out of this passage. I think you'll be able to easily make application to your life because remember, you do remember, right? We're talking about anger and the man of God, parentheses, and me too. So don't forget that. First of all, in the story, it becomes really evident when Abigail and Nabal are described right away that in uh, verse 3, it says there, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. And so the stage is set for conflict because we have, a, we have an ignorant, badly behaved man named Nabal. Nabal means fool. Nabal means fool. It's a very interesting concept. Was he named that as a baby or was he living up to a nickname that the people gave him? We don't know. It would be interesting to know how such a gracious, beautiful woman who was so wise and discerning ended up with such a wicked man. And remember, this is the the, the era of arranged marriages as well. It's likely that they had been married for many years. Uh, Abigail completely understood her husband and what made him tick. So did his servants as well. First of all, the first thing we want to learn from this letter A is that badly behaved people set the stage for an angry response. Badly behaved people set the stage for an 
an angry response. And so the reminder to us is, is that every day when we start our day, we need to know that we are going to encounter unkind, unappreciative, rude, ignorant, badly behaved people because people are sinners. Dogs bark and sinners sin. It's not our job to strap on the sword and wipe them off the face of the earth for being ignorant. And so one of the things we got to understand is that as the Spirit of God is involved in us, now some of you make a living strapping on a sword and shutting down ignorant people, but that's, don't let that harden your heart. But uh, I was speaking of law enforcement, <laughs> whom we support very much here at Fellowship Bible Church, for whom we're very grateful. But in the day-to-day interactions in relationships, we're going to face unkind, ignorant, ill-behaved people. Principle number one that we need to take away from this is that, that anger is a choice. No one can make you angry. Anger is a choice. And you have to decide, am I going to yield my heart to the Spirit of God who's in me? Am I going to be, respond in a Christ-like manner? Or am I going to go ballistic here right now? And you know, it just occurs to me too that David, I don't think David really expected this to happen. He got kind of blindsided. Often you're going to run into these ill-behaved people when you don't expect it. And and so it's a snap response. And you allow yourself to get angry. After one of our earlier services, a a young man came up to me, a young father came up to me, and he, he just said, Pastor Van, I want you to know you can't believe the timing of this message. He said, this morning when we were getting ready for church, my boy locked the door and wouldn't let me in his bedroom and I ripped it off the hinges. You know, I I can relate to that. You can say, ooh, how could he do that? I can see doing that in a heartbeat. Are you kidding me? You ill-behaved, rude, ignorant kid. I told you to do something and you didn't do it. Why? My goal was blocked. I'm the king of this house. I'm the one that you need to obey. Don't treat me like that. And the next thing you know, I... Don't remember knocking doors off of hinges, but I can relate to that feeling. Can you? Letter B, David was hungry, he was homeless, and he was in need. And you need to recognize in the context of the story that David's men were on the run. They were out in the wilderness. They had no homes. They had no way of making a living. They were running from King Saul. And so they found themselves in this valley where Nabal's men were pasturing their flocks for extended months going into the harvest season when they would shear the sheep and slaughter the animals. They were fattening them up. And bandits would come from all directions in the wilderness, steal their animals, and kill the servants. And Nabal, would, Nabal knew that he often experienced significant loss during that season. But because David, remember in the passage it described it, David and his men were in that valley, and so it was like they were a wall or a fence around Nabal and his property. And during that time, they had no losses. So David wasn't trying to extort Nabal into a meal. He was hungry. He was homeless. He was in need. And Nabal had plenty, and David simply knew that Nabal knew that Nabal's abundance was largely due to the fact, it was only enhanced by the fact that David and his men had been there to run protection for them. So it was a logical thought that he had. And what happens is, in verses 24, verses 14 and 15, this was Jeff Maine's part. He was quite a Nabal, wasn't he? A Nabal. This is verses 10, uh, verses 10 and 11. He gets what? What does he get? Disre- uh, I'm up on letter B, excuse me. 
Be alert to the yellow flags of your own triggers under principle number two. David was hungry, he was homeless, and he was in need. He was a fugitive. And so when you're hungry, when you're tired, know what the yellow flags are, the cautions in your life. You're stressed out. It's been a long week. You got to come home. You got more work to do. There's a deadline. You have things going bad at work and you come home and you know your wife's going to want to know he said, she said, and you're all about your day. And instead you light it up and treat her harshly. Because why? Because you ignored the yellow flag in your life of the stress and the fatigue and where you were in your week and that right now I am really vulnerable to my flesh and I can let myself go here. I've been operating on four hours of sleep and it ain't pretty. Well, I'll tell you, that's not an excuse for sin. But it does let us know that we need to be have an awareness of ourselves and that you know what right now I need to know when I walk in this house my wife wants my attention and, and I am really tired and I need to just keep calm and I need to love my wife and I need to just visit with her and whatever or the kids want me to go do something that I really don't want to do Instead of biting the heads off your kids, you pay attention to the yellow flags. That's my point there. And then the disrespect, unkindness, and harsh words that I jumped to. Letter C. Disrespect, unkindness, and harsh words are sparks to anger fuel. We all have anger fuel. All it takes is a spark to hit our fuel, whatever it is that sets us off. And the right spark hits it, and you blow up. And in David's case, he thought it was only logical that Nabal would help feed him. And instead, in disrespect, he says in verses 10 and 11, Jeff Main's part, who is David? Like, I never heard of David. Well, he's lying. He knew who David was. He knew who Saul was. He knew that David was the appointed. Many young men in our countryside are leaving their masters and acting like they're somebody when they're nothing. And what does he do? He speaks unkind, harsh words, disrespectful words, and it sparks David's anger fuel. And he says, strap on the swords. Verses 14 and 15, what does David say? David's young men come away. They tell David, verses 13, he says to his men, strap on your sword. Three times he references swords. So you have there the account where his anger fuel is hit. Principle number three, choice of words and tone of voice really matter. Husbands, have you figured that one out yet? Choice of words and tone of voice really matter. It matters to our wives. It matters to our children. For pastors, it matters to the flock. For bosses, it matters to the employees. The way we say something is often as important as, how, as what we say. Number four, principle number four, public humiliation. Public humiliation, this is verses 10 through 12. Pu- public humiliation brings the worst out of a leader. No one likes to be humiliated. And David went with a reasonable request and, and Nabal humiliated him in front of 10 of his best men. And when they come back and tell David, David's embarrassed that he even asked the question now. And no one likes humiliation. Men especially don't like humiliation, especially not public humiliation. And leaders particularly do not like to be humiliated in front of their men. And it set off his anger fuel. Number four, words spoken and decisions made in the heat of temper are almost always wrong and regretful. Verse 13, David says, strap on your swords. Later on in the passage, he says, as sure as I'm standing here today, by tomorrow at this time, Nabal and not one single male in all of his farm and camp and property will be alive. I'll wipe them off the face of the earth. I mean, he is just mad. He's really mad. 
And it was wrong. And it was regretful. I sometimes think that I would have left trouble with my temper if I quit playing racquetball with Jim Shoopy on Wednesday mornings. A couple times, I've really gotten angry. And what is it? That I swing at a ball and the ball doesn't go where I want it to go and it really makes me mad. Are you kidding me? Where's the Holy Spirit, Pastor Van? Shut up. (laughs) I'm teasing. And you know, the other day, I, I just got madder and madder and I took, is matter a word? I got more mad, increasingly angry. And I messed up on an easy shot and I took my racket and I just hit it against the wall and I bent my good racket. Now, I'm not going to allow myself to buy a new one. I'm going to get good with a bent racket. You know, that bothered me all day. Jim didn't say anything. He should have. He should have hit me upside the head with his racket. (laughs) Bothered me. I left and showered at the gym, took off. And that's my day to study the Bible after I play racquetball on Wednesdays. And it really bothered me. Why? Because what's done in the heat of temper is almost always regretful and you cannot undo it most times. In David's situation, he had the voice of reason enter his life in the wisdom of Abigail and didn't she handle this situation masterfully? Wives who have an angry husband, you should study this passage. Somehow in there, it has to do with food and dealing with angry men. That's part of it. And she was so wise in her timing of speaking to Nabal. It is a wise person who will listen to the voices of reason, principle number five. And Abigail was the voice of reason in David's life at a time when he absolutely needed a voice Leaders, we need to listen to the people around us to shut us down on occasion. Letter E, when do we fail? When we do fail, letter E, we need to clean up the mess ASAP. ASAP. Don't wait until tomorrow. Principle number six. Don't wait until tomorrow. Ephesians 4.26b. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Letter F is why I felt so badly after I Lost my temper in the racquetball court a few weeks ago. Unrighteous anger is an undisguisable giveaway of being outside of the Spirit's control. As I went out of the gym and got in my truck and I left, I just thought to myself, you are pathetic. You you had better examine your heart now. And it scares you, doesn't it, when you realize that what can happen in a moment of a flash of anger, and I recognize that in 23 years of building a strong ministry and humbly being allowed to be servant of the Lord here, that you could lose it all in 23 seconds. And David almost lost it. And a voice of reason spoke up and said, my Lord, have something to eat. Let me wash your feet. Somehow it had to help that she was beautiful. I don't know, David married her in a hurry, didn't he? There is no cure for a bad temper like growing in Christ. 
There's no cure, principle number seven, for a bad temper like growing in Christ. So what do you do? You got to run to the cross. You got to let the blood of Christ cleanse you. The dear dad that came to me this morning was precious. He said, I stopped. I started to lecture my kids and I stopped and they said, dad, what, what? He said, I, I, we can't talk about this right now. He realized that he was equally as guilty as his children on the other side. Didn't excuse his children's behavior. What a sensitive and precious dad. You can't undo it. Now you got to go home from church and fix a broken door. And I would say what really, really matters now is that as soon as possible, he holds his kids in his arms and they run to the cross together and he shows them how to repent of his sinful attitude and that they learn as a family from it. Maybe an opportunity to teach his boys something that as young men, they're really going to need to know. So I don't know how the Spirit of God wants to use this in your life. What a story this is. And we've, we've barely scratched the surface of some of the application. But I trust that that's been helpful. If you have an anger issue in your marriage, an anger issue in your parenting, an anger issue on your job, an anger issue on the ball court, whatever it is, run to the cross. And let the Spirit of God wash you again, cleanse you again. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Proverbs says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises up again. And we start new right now with what God is doing in my life. Conforming me to His image and letting me bear beautiful fruit in my life rather than the ugliness of ungodly anger. Let's pray. Stand, please. And so, Father, would you just um, continue um, to take the message through the Spirit of God and, and our thoughts and the things that have crossed our minds today, and there's people here who have secrets They have anger in their lives and nobody knows it. They hide it well. There's others who there's anger, ungodly anger in their lives and a few people know it, but they hide that well too. And and then there's the unexpected moments where ill-behaved person is going to cut in front of us. And it's that zero to ten moment. So would you help us to understand what it means to walk and step with the Spirit to have yielded, surrendered hearts before you. That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be ours. He who turned the tables in the temple with righteous anger and who quietly and gently gave soft answers back to others, never sinning, always surrendered to your will. Father, we recognize the weaknesses of our flesh. We recognize the vulnerabilities of our own personalities and tendencies. And so we will look for you to do a new work in us starting right now, this week, as we walk in humility before you. Grow us as individuals, as families, and as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.